The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. The word of God speaks to us. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. This is God's word to us. There we go. That's my fault. I kept on hitting the wrong button. <laughs> I'm Dave. I know a lot of you. I met some of you this morning. Uh, as Matt said, we're continuing in our, our series in Genesis. And uh, I want to just take a moment to pray for you. You pray for me. We're going to jump in. So Heavenly Father, I thank you for this moment with my friends and my family. We thank you for the Jennings family. What a gift they are and what an honor it is to like, be able to pray for them as parents and uh, all the, the babies that were dedicated today. What a gift. And we, we thank you for your faithfulness in our lives from the times that we were little ones up to this moment that um, you're aware of every step, every day. And we pray right now as you've sovereignly led us in your providence to be here together in this moment, looking at this text, that uh, your will for our lives would be done, God that we would have open eyes, open ears, soft hearts to receive all that you would have for us. And we pray, Jesus, this in your name, together God's people said. So we've dedicated like 11 babies today, which has been so fun. Jennings, you guys structured that. You got all the attention. You got extra prayer just having this service just be with you guys. But uh, it's been a full fun day dedicating kids. Um, And it it seemed, and it was not planned, but it seems really fitting that a day that we dedicate 11 babies is the day that we, as we've gone through this series in Genesis, recovering our origin story, is the day we come to the most beloved kid story in all scripture, which is Noah and the ark. Right? There, is, there is no story that is probably more beloved as a children's story in the Bible. There's no story that's more associated with kids than the story of Noah and the ark. And on the surface, that makes sense in some ways, right? Because like, kids love animals. Kids love boats. Kids definitely love rainbows. And, uh, and the story has all those things. Right? And so as a culture, like that's, that's really pervasive when we think of the lives of children and Noah and the ark. Like if we are going to decorate, I'm sure, out of these 11 babies, there's at least one baby represented today that has a Noah and the ark nursery at home, 
right? They lay in their crib and they've got a mobile of the ark and the animals, right? Or if you're like me, some of our earliest toys were Noah and the ark, whether it was the Fisher Price one. I'm so old, mine was carved out of wood. Um, and some of the animals are missing. So in my household, like, the pigs will not live on, nor the geese. They've lost their mate. But my kids have played with the same Noah and the Ark toy that I had 42 years ago, right? And even if we get a little bit older, like as a church, we can still have our children engage in Noah and the Ark. We could rent a Noah and the Ark bounce house for them, right? Or even if you're a teenager, Jubilee, don't fret. Like if, if you're getting older, you don't have to miss out on the fun. Maybe you and your parents are taking a trip to Wisconsin. You can go to the nation's largest water park, Noah and the Ark Water Park, and wait for it, ride rides such as the Flash Flood. <laughs> Which is just like if you pause for a moment, why would you want to go to a theme park that's named after a mass drowning event? Doesn't seem appropriate, right? But it, it actually sheds light onto the fact that, that whether we've approached the story in a way that we share it with just with babies, or regardless of how it's represented in our culture, we tend to view this story as child's play, as fun, as lighthearted. And the problem is, like in reality, maybe an honest reading of this story would show it to be the least child-appropriate story in all Scripture. Not that we shouldn't teach it to our kids, but that surely and certainly there's a wonder and a heaviness and a seriousness to this story that is relevant for each and every one of us today. It's a very grown-up story. It's a story about incomprehensible evil and violence covering the face of the earth. It's a story about a creation that God made as good, the refrain of God seeing in Genesis 1 and 2 that his creation was good, 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 very good, that here in this story, God sees corruption, destruction. It's a story of God's heartbreak and a story of his justice and judgment. And you just have to wonder that whether we knowingly or unknowingly, whether we consciously or subconsciously kind of put this story fenced in as a tale for children's storybook Bibles or bedtime stories that maybe we in some way are trying to domesticate it, trying to lighten it, trying to make it more comfortable, feel a little safer. And pun fully intended, the problem we have is that we water down the story of the flood. But what I want to do this morning, my prayer, my hope for each of us, is that as we approach this story honestly, as it's told in Genesis, that we would see truth and wonder about who God is and what it means for us that perhaps we have never known or that we have left behind truth about God's response to evil which we all have questions about. Truth about God's justice and judgment, which we all wonder about. Truth about God's heart, which we all need to know. And so we're not going to go through line by line the entire story of Noah and the ark and the flood this morning. But what I want to do for us is to help us see three things that perhaps we need to rediscover about the flood story. 
And the first is this. We need to, to see the justice of God. Let's look at how the story begins. We're going to go back a few verses from where Kristen read so well. Starting in chapter 6, verse 1. It's up on the screen. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. They saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any as they chose. And the Lord God said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay, we can all take a deep breath. (laughs) the, The flood story begins with what is without question, the most debated, controversial, difficult text, not only in Genesis, but but scholars would say in all the Old Testament. But I used to think this wasn't hard to understand at all. I thought it was crystal clear. In fact, Dugan's you and I, one of the first conversations we had was about this text. I don't know if you remember, you guys had questions, and I was like, it's no big deal. Let me tell you how it is, right? And my interpretation then, probably about 10 years ago, was, hey, what's happening here, this follows genealogies in Scripture. This follows some genealogies of the sons of Adam and Eve. And you have two genealogies that are laid out. You have Seth's line, which is the the third boy of Adam and Eve. And you have Cain, one of their older sons. And what you have is Seth's line, his, his genealogy. These are righteous people that are walking with God. And then you have Seth's line, who are unrighteous people, not walking with God. And so what you have here is the original biblical story that warns us about being unequally yoked in marriage. Righteous sons should not marry unrighteous daughters. And by doing so, there's this perversion of the line of Seth. You have righteous families that are becoming unrighteous through marriage. It's straight and simple and not too weird at all, nice and clean. Now the problem with that is like the rest of scripture (laughs) in a way. Mainly because if you read New Testament passages in 1 Peter chapter 3 and 2 Peter chapter 2 and Jesus' little brother Jude and his letter to the church, that all three of those letters specifically refer back to these stories and they make it clear that the sons of God are not talking about the descendants of Seth. They make it clear that the sons of God here are referring to rebellious spiritual beings or fallen angels. And so things get weird, right? Things seem strange. But this is the oldest, most consistent view held in church history. And as I read commentary after commentary after commentary, the the mass majority hold to this view, trusted theologians. And, And one of the reasons is that all through the Old Testament, that term, sons of God, although maybe two times it's used in relation to human beings, that the mass majority of the time in the Old Testament, that term, sons of God, refers to angels. It refers to spiritual beings. For example, the beginning of the book of Job, which we studied a few years ago together, Job 1, verse 6, starts out like this. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan was among them. 
So this heavenly council, this divine council, these spiritual beings are referred to as sons of God. So what is happening here in this hard to understand, bizarre text? Well, although there are multiple interpretations that have been given, the oldest and the most likely is that this is referring to fallen angels or demons who were somehow in a mysterious way joining themselves, marrying themselves to human women, as one commentator put it, possibly commandeering the souls of men. And in these demonized men, they were marrying the daughters of other men. Commentator David Atkinson, he says this, whoever they were, there's something passionate about their embrace and something monstrous was the outcome. The Nephilim refer apparently to giants, the origin of of some of whom at least, if not all, is traced to these angel marriages. So evidently the fruit of this unholy union were these Nephilim, that literally translates in Hebrew to fallen ones. And so you might have a study Bible or a note in your Bible that will mark that as giants. And because of the context in the Old Testament and other places, that's why that's translated that way. But, but specifically it means literally fallen ones, which is referring to a field of battle. So the picture we're getting here is that from Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve take that fruit and they rebel against God, this is the beginning in Genesis of a downward spiral. And the next chapter, in a heartbreaking way, you have a brother murder another brother in in jealousy and wickedness. And you have descendants of that man who begin to subjugate others in violence and live in pride, and then here things are spiraling down and they're getting worse, and you have these rebellious spiritual beings who are joining themselves to human women, and their offspring are are famous and violent men of legend. And you think to yourself, if you're like me, I don't like this. But the good news is that God doesn't like it either. Like embedded right in the middle of these strange verses is verse three, where the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. That, that could mean that, hey, because of this wickedness, I'm going to begin to limit the lifespan span of humanity. And we can see that pattern happen as Genesis continues. That could also mean, and what I think is that God's saying, hey, the world is on fire and evil, and wickedness. And I am from this moment on, I'm beginning a countdown to quench that fire. Then I'm going to do something about it, and the clock is starting. In 120 years, something's going to happen. What the story's about. And now I realize this all sounds like we've ceased talking about reality, and we're talking about something that sounds like J.R.R. Tolkien wrote it, right? It's like, this is strange and weird, and, and maybe, I don't know, it just feels like fantasy. But what I want to remind us is that Genesis, although it is written for us in a real way, it was originally written for the Exodus generation. God's people led out of slavery into the the freedom of the promised land. And Moses is writing to them so they would know who God is, know who they are. And none of this would sound strange to them at all because they lived under the enslavement and then were surrounded by nations who celebrated and treasured stories of 
kings who ruled in power, who claimed to have a, a, a collision of the divine and the human in their life represented. They claimed to be demigods, and they built harems of women in their lust, and they ruled in violence. And the stories of fame and renown of men who massacred people on the battlefield were stories that they celebrated. And God is saying in these opening verses, hey, these other cultures that surround you, they hold these stories up as ultimate. They hold these rulers up as ultimate. And the ultimate thing that God's saying is they stand not in power against me. That I rule in power over all of them and these heroes of these cultures that surround you, that subjugate people, that, that celebrate violence, that rule empowered by demonic dark forces that I can deal with them in an instant. The undisputed reign of God over all things is what the story's about. And what's helpful here is, is my favorite living preacher, at least of all time, is uh, of all, my favorite living preacher of all time. My favorite living preacher is Alistair Begg. He's a Scottish guy who pastors in Cleveland. Um, but he says it, and he, well, the way he says it, because he's Scottish, sounds way better than when I say it, but it's a, it's a great principle in studying Scripture. And the principle is this. Begg says, the main thing is the plain thing, and the plain thing is the main thing. So just say that in your head in a Scottish accent. It sounds great, and it helps you remember hard places in Scripture. We're like, what's going on? Well, what's plainly being communicated here, right? Well, all of the disturbing mystery and the strangeness of verse 1 through 4, well, there is brutal clarity in what follows. Here's the main thing. Here's the plain thing. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Let the darkness that's being communicated in that verse settle in. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so for the original hearers of this book and for us today, Genesis is written to answer profound and important questions about who God is and who we are. And the question persists, hey, what does God do in the midst of evil? In the face of profound darkness and wickedness, what's God going to do? Does he stand a chance against such powerful forces? Can God do anything? And we read in verse 6 that the Lord God regretted that he had made man on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. And so God said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Genesis 1 and 2 is a story of creation. And here in Genesis 6, we have a story of decreation and recreation. And if you read in Genesis 6, as, as Kristen read for us in chapter, uh, verses 11 and 12, you see this refrain of, 
The earth was corrupted. Humans were living in corruption. The earth was corrupt. The Hebrew word there literally means to destroy. And so in response, at the end of those verses, seeing that humanity had been destroyed through their evil actions and they had destroyed the earth through their wickedness and everything had been destroyed, that God then recognizing and seeing the reality of that destruction would bring his own destruction. The story of the flood is a story where God sees the evilness of man and it provokes the justice of God. And something that's easy to to fly past is what's true at the beginning of verse 5. Three words, the Lord saw. The flood story is a story that, that holds up before us when it comes to pervasive evil and wickedness and the darkest things that occur on this earth, God sees. Jen Wilkin, in her book, None Like Him, she writes this. Though in human terms, justice is portrayed as blind, the justice of God is wide-eyed and clear-sighted. Not only is he the judge, he's also the eyewitness who testifies to the facts. Perfectly clear-sighted in his recollections, there is no such thing as secret sin. And so we ask ourselves, as it relates to this story, and we hear of the, the wickedness of man being great on the earth and every intention of his thoughts and his hearts being only evil continually. But we also think about our time right now and the weight that we carry when we see realities in our world. And we even think about our own lives. We can ask the question, can you imagine what God sees? Not even just the actual deeds done, but the thoughts of the heart and the intentions of the heart that lead to those action. Can we imagine what God sees? Jesus speaks of this in Luke 12 when he says, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And whatever you have whispered in private rooms will be shouted from the rooftops. See, the flood is a story that holds up the truth that there's nothing done in the dark that God does not see. That there's no whisper or action that God does not see or hear. That there is nothing buried under the threat to keep silent that God is not aware of. The story of the flood is a story that holds up the truth that God sees. And I just think like last week when we took a moment in the service and Bridget came up and she led us powerfully in praying for biblical justice as we interceded together. And she laid out all these massive, epic, heavy realities. War, homelessness, poverty, Racial prejudice and injustice. And when we pray big prayers like that, we do so trusting that we're praying to a big God who is not just loving, but because he is loving, he is also just. We pray to a God that sees. And the story of the flood is about God's authority to bring divine judgment on a humanity who is fully committed to evil and wickedness. And 
I'm sure y'all like me, where sometimes you, you talk about or you read about or you hear about God's judgment of God, and there's something in each of us that can feel uncomfortable with that reality. We often don't want to talk about God's judgment towards evil or divine justice. It's easier to make the story about animals and a boat and a rainbow. But the truth is that our hearts divided when we feel that way. That's not rational. That's not honest. Because if God is loving, that means God has to be concerned with justice. A good God must be a God who judges. What's the alternative? In all of his power and his authority, yet he sees evil and he, and he acts in passivity or indifference, that would make him good or trustworthy. He must be judge because that's part of what makes him good. And the Bible always holds up, not in tension, but in perfect unity, the fact that God is a God of love and justice. Psalm 33, 5 reads, The Lord loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of his unfailing love. God's judgment means that there's hope for the enslaved, for the assaulted, for the abused, for the slandered. The fact that God is a God of love and justice means that evil will ultimately always be held to account by a God who sees everything. Because there's a good God in heaven who gets angry in the face of evil. There's a good father in heaven who cares about his creation when he sees creation hurting. The story of the flood is a story of the justice of God. But the story of the flood, too, is also a story about the heart of God. Look at verse 6 again. And the Lord God regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Now that word regretted doesn't mean that God felt like he made a mistake or he wished he hadn't have made creation. The, the best word for regret there is the word lament, which is a word that we don't use every day, but it's a word that I think most of us understand, the, the power of that grief. That word speaks to the heaviness of a broken heart. We see that as the story goes on when seeing the sinfulness of man, God's described as seeing that and it being a grief to his heart. For all of us, when we read this story as it's presented in Genesis, it's intense and that, that act of judgment to save eight on an ark, but also to bring death to the, to the rest of the world, we see that and it seems extreme and we recoil at that act of, of judgment. And yet what we see here is that that's not just heavy for us. That's not just hard for us. That's heavy for God. That's hard for God. The picture of divine, divine judgment here isn't God delighting in the destruction. It's a picture of God executing justice with a broken and heavy heart. Poetically, as if the very waters of the flood are the tears of God. That word grief in Hebrew, it means a deep, unfulfilled longing. It means a, a, a deep, bitter anguish. And it should strike us all that if you start to read the Bible, this is actually the first time we hear anything about the emotions of God. And the first emotion we learn about God is that he's heartbroken over the wickedness and evil and destruction of his good creation. The story of the flood is the story where we get to see the heart of God and we see God's heart 
personally impacted and affected by the choices that people make as, as it regards to how we treat each other and creation. The story of the flood is a story of God's suffering because of the sins of the world. And it grieved him to his heart. That Old Testament phrase is used to describe big brothers when they learn their little sister's been assaulted. It's a phrase that's used to describe Prince Jonathan when he learns that his father in evil and wickedness, King Saul, is seeking to murder his beloved friend David. It's a phrase in the New Testament that shows up as Jesus Christ in John chapter 11 stands with tears in his eyes, quaking with rage at the tomb of his beloved friend Lazarus looking death in the face. See, the flood is a story about the very vulnerability of the heart of God. David Atkinson in the message of Genesis says this, here is the pain of creative love. Here's the wounded spirit of the artist whose work is rejected, the broken heart of a lover whose love is not returned. God makes himself vulnerable. Genesis 6 points us to the suffering of God. And God grieves here because he has chosen to bind his heart and his life to his creation. God grieves here because he has chosen to let us into his heart. He didn't have to connect to us. God didn't make creation because he was lacking something or he needed something. Out of the overflow of his goodness, he makes a good universe. And yet he makes humans in his image and he voluntarily bound his heart to humanity. And if we understand this rightly, it can change the very way we see God this morning. God so chose to connect himself to humanity that his own joy is connected to us. And when he sees something go wrong with us, and when he sees us in rebellion against him, and when he sees evil and wickedness, it grieves his very heart. And as we've been in this study, we've considered questions already, like when Genesis 3 happens and Eve and Adam, they, they take that fruit and they rebel against God. Like, why does the story go on? Why didn't God just have them die right then and wipe it away and do something else? And the same question presents itself here. If Genesis 6 says that, or Genesis 6, 5 says that God saw the wickedness of man was great and only evil, why doesn't Genesis 6 simply say, and God was done with us, the end? Some of us, a lot of the time, and all of us, some of the time, ask that question when we see the wickedness and evil of the world and our lives are touched by horrible dark things and we feel the reality of hardship and suffering, we ask, hey, why are we all still here? I've asked that question. Why hasn't God just ended this by now? And the answer is because God has given us a place in his heart. Even, even if that breaks his heart, even if that brings him grief, the story of the flood is God acting against evil and judgment, yes, but also not giving up on people. There's something incredible about the heart of God that's seen in a grieving heart of God. But finally and lastly, thirdly, the story of the flood is a story about the grace of God. 
It is a story of judgment, but it's also a story about salvation. Because all of these verses build to to one short yet profound verse that's easy to look over, but we're going to camp out here for the rest of our time. All this evil and corruption laid out in these verses leads to this. Verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. When God looked at the earth and it was all dark, covered in evil and wickedness, and his heart is broken, in the midst of that pitch blackness, it's as if he sees one light burning, one star in the sky, one flame set afire, and that flame isn't set by Noah In Noah's life, because Noah's so great, that flame exists because God is so good and he's being gracious to Noah. Because this verse, but Noah found favor, that word favor, that literally means grace. This story of the flood begins when Noah enters the scene with God giving something that Noah didn't deserve out of God's goodness. Before Noah is described as faithful, which he is, and before Noah acts in righteousness, which he does, he's described as a man who received God's grace. And so we're going to go on, if we read the story, to see this refrain that's beautiful. Noah doesn't say anything for the mass majority of the story. He's silent, but he's on the move, and the refrain is, and Noah did all that God commanded him to do. Noah did all that God commanded him to do. Again, Noah did all that God commanded him to do, and he is an example of faithfulness, and he is an example of righteousness. But before that, the author of Genesis is very intentional that he wants us to know before Noah was obedient, before Noah was righteous. What we need to know about Noah is that Noah found favor in the eyes of God. This is a pattern we see not only here, but all through scripture. Ephesians 2.8, by grace, Christian, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. That's our story if we're in Christ. That's Noah's story too. And so one of the ways this story has been lost to the relegation of bedtime story uh, tales for kids is that it's told in a way that, hey, the whole earth was so bad, but Noah was so good. And so God was pretty obligated then to save him, gave him an escape plan. And Noah, because he was so righteous, he saved himself. And that's not the story. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. That means Noah received grace from God. And in that grace, he walked in righteousness and God saved him. See, the account of the flood isn't just about judgment. It's about God's salvation. Noah couldn't save himself. None of us can save ourselves from God's just judgment because of all the ways that we have been evil and wicked and rebelled against him. That was Noah's story. He's going to screw up in pretty epic ways here. There's, there's an old trick Bible school question, which is, hey, what did Noah bring on the ark? You can say, well, people. Okay, what else did Noah bring on the ark? Well, his family. Okay, what else did Noah bring on the ark? Sin. Noah wasn't perfect. His sons and their wives weren't perfect. But God in his grace saved them from judgment. And that's the salvation that God alone provides. And the story of Noah points beyond this ancient story of the flood to a greater salvation to come because the story teaches us about God's pattern to save and that's a pattern of salvation that comes through judgment. 
And so if we step back and we begin to meditate on this story and we think about the whole narrative of Scripture and how God saves, we can see this story and we see a story of one man who God said was righteous in his generation and God saved that one man and spared his life although the rest of the world died because of their wicked and evil ways. And yet there was a greater salvation coming through judgment that Noah's story points to, and that story is a a beautiful, mysterious inversion where there is one man who's actually truly righteous, Jesus, the Son of God, and yet, although he's truly righteous, he's the one who dies so that a, a wicked and evil world may live through his sacrifice. Noah's story and this flood story is a story of God's heart breaking because of the the evil, wicked reality on the earth. But Jesus on the cross, do you remember what happens when that Roman soldier soldier shoves that spear in his side to assure he's dead? What comes out is blood and water because literally Jesus' heart broke on the cross bearing the weight of our sins. His emotional suffering and betrayal from his friends, his physical suffering, his spiritual suffering as he took on the most epic storm of the wrath of God that he alone didn't deserve, but he was sunk in the waters of the wrath of God so that we may rise to new life in him. At the flood, we see God beginning to suffer for our sin, But on the cross, we see God completely and fully, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, suffering for our sin. And the cross is the place where we see the justice of God, a price being paid for the evil of the world and the love of God because Jesus willingly paid the price for that evil, the love and justice of God meet at the cross of Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is the promise held out for us today, that that Jesus is the vessel of our salvation. That the, the primary way being a Christian is described by Paul in the New Testament is what? That we are in Christ that we are secure in him, we are saved in him, we find life in him because he took on the judgment that we deserve so that we may live now and live forever. Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, for, for those of us in the room that maybe came in carrying the wounds and the scars of evil committed against us. I pray that, Spirit, you would bring comfort to each and every one of us and that you would shine a light in our hearts Because you, God, are a God of justice and judgment. You see all evil. And you're not indifferent. You're not distant. But you always ultimately bring justice. Everyone ultimately will stand before you and give an account. 
And so as we look at our own lives and see the seriousness of sin and rebellion against you, we thank you that we see your heart in this scripture, God. That you are willing to suffer for sin and you are a God of salvation. And although we cannot save ourselves, that Christ Jesus, you have saved us. If we believe in you, if we follow you, if we receive you as King and Lord and Savior, that you are the vessel of our salvation. May we live in that light today. May we stand in that hope today. May we proclaim that truth with our lives. Jesus, we pray this in your name. God's people said.